Welcome back to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast. I'm Jason Peewoodberry, and today I'm joined by Colin Dickey, author of The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. The paranormal haunts our imagination. And in this great book, Dickey smartly and passionately delves into the lore surrounding Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, phantom islands like Atlantis and Lemuria, and the Kentucky Meat Shower. Maybe you aren't as familiar with that last one, but don't worry, he gets all the way into it. Along the way, he describes the way occult literature and media mythmaking influences and shapes popular perception of these topics. It's a book packed with ideas, but easy to read, thoughtful, good-humored, and sharp. Dickey engages with the currents of nationalism, colonialism, outright ill intent or hucksterism, and racism that it's often laced into the way we tell stories about the unknown. In these post-truth, eerily apocalyptic times, it's clear that the unknown is a lens looked through by everyone from earnest seekers to power-hungry opportunists. The need to understand how to navigate the weird is, is great in these times, and Dickey's new book steps up to the task with helpful ideas about how to engage with what we don't understand. Before we get into my talk with Colin, a reminder, Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard is back. This Sunday, August 16th, from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 11 Eastern, on Dublab. We're there every third Sunday of the month, four-hour block of freeform pirate radio programming. This week, we've got a special presentation by William Tyler. He's bringing his Sea of Glass program back. You'll hear my show, Range and Basin, Tyler Wilcox's Doom and Gloom from the Tomb, Marty Sartini Garner's Personal Sky, and a special episode of The Tonight Zone. Shows are archived there on DubLab, but you can also get individual episodes if you support Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. All right, let's get into my talk with Colin Dickey, author of The Unidentified. Speak with you more on the other side. Colin, thanks so much for taking the time to speak about your great new book, The Unidentified on Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions Podcast. I, I appreciate it very much. Of course, yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. This book was a lot of fun to read, and uh, it was full of, of great information. Uh, was this a pretty fun book to uh, to write as well? Um, yeah, I would definitely say that. I think that, um, you know, my last book on ghosts, um, I got to go to like New Orleans and like, you know, stay in hotels in downtown Los Angeles that were supposedly haunted and like Salem, Massachusetts. And I got to go to a lot of like cool cities. Um, this time around, I was like out in the middle of nowhere, like, you know, Darien, Georgia and like, you know, upstate New York and sort of random places. Um, so it was like a very different vibe, but, um, you know, that's kind of where, these these things seem to be so in that sense it was yeah it was fun it was fun to kind of go around the country into these kind of otherwise kind of spaces that sort of read as uh you know the kind of the wastelands in some way you know the kind of you know far frontier of civilization and in a way that was kind of cool to explore yeah man well you're speaking to me from phoenix arizona so while i'm sort of in the urban center of the wasteland uh I, i'm familiar with what you're talking about that uh the sort of dusty towns and small bars and all that stuff. So um, it is strange country. Yeah, we did. Uh, my, my friend Jason Brown, who's in the book, and he's sort of, as I describe him, a, a conspiracy theorist theorist. Um, I basically dragged him on a, a multi-day road trip. We, we went from the Bay Area in California uh, to Tonopah, Nevada, and then down the extraterrestrial highway into Las Vegas. We got into Las Vegas like six days after the Las Vegas shooting, which was a really bizarre experience. Um, and then from there down to Socorro, New Mexico, which is the piece that ended up in the book um, and the Trinity test site the day that it was like open, you know, one of two days a year. When so, so it was like this cool, like kind of 
post-apocalyptic paranoid road trip through kind of, you know, the Southwest desert and kind of like some of the kind of stranger spots in America's like repressed psyche, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that probably sounds, you know, spooky or ominous to some people, but uh, it's also kind of awesome. So (laughs) I guess there's that, you know. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was cool, you know, at at times, you know, as I said, you know, the being there right after the Vegas shooting and seeing like, you know, the normal, you're driving down Las Vegas Boulevard and normally those electric signs are like, you know, advertising, you know, Cirque du Soleil or whatever. And instead they all just have like crisis hotline numbers. And, you know, so like, it was a really like unique and strange experience, but yeah, it was, it was also kind of a reflection of just like, kind of the way in which so much of the Southwest kind of has those spaces of, uh, you know, that, yeah, they're kind of eerie and unsettling in a way that we kind of maybe don't talk too much about, but they're, it's all there. It's all there right under the surface. So yeah, it was, it was both like, I mean, it was a cool road trip. It was also a little bit, you know, like unnerving, but I think in a, in a productive way, I guess, if you could say that. Yeah. Maybe slight, you know, slightly, uh, you know, I don't know, forecasting the the strangeness to come in a lot of weird ways. I guess it probably always feels like that anytime somebody takes a dive into the unknown, you know. Um, before, before though, we get into the, the sort of content of the book, I, I wondered if you could tell me how you became interested on the paranormal on a personal level, you know, and, and then sort of maybe how that became the primary focus of, of your writing, you write about it from a, a different angle than a lot of people who, who do cover this stuff, but how did you find your way into uh, the subject on, on, on a, you know, individual level? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird, right? Cause like, I, you know, I certainly grew up, um, you know, loving, I don't know if you remember that show in search of with Leonard Nimoy was, you know, about like Stonehenge and the pyramids and all that stuff. And I just love that show. Yeah. Um, and like, there's like the time life unexplained phenomenon series that I, I remember ads for all the time. I loved all that stuff growing up. I loved going to the Winchester mystery house as a kid. I was just like, you know, like when I was a kid, yeah, I was just all, all this stuff was just sort of right there filled with all this weird wonder. And then, you know, I grew up and I don't know, got more skeptical and I've kind of set all that stuff aside or whatever. But, um, I kind I, you know, I came back to it probably a little bit by accident, um, with my first book, which was about, um, you know, famous people's heads that were stolen in the 19th century, uh, Mozart and, um, uh, Beethoven and Franz Joseph Haydn, Emanuel Swedenborg and some other people whose heads were stolen. Um, and, and the reason seemed to be for, for, in a lot of cases, because of phrenology, which is, you know, the, the science of like, you know, the bumps on your head telling you about your personality, which is bunk, terrible pseudoscience, but like it, you know, but it had this impact that, you know, I kind of found like sort of shaped the 19th century in this way. And I was like, Oh, so it kind of came back to this stuff in the sense of like, you know, just because it's like fringe, just because it's um, it it's not scientific or it's not taken seriously or it's not sort of mainstream religion or anything like that, just because it seems ridiculous doesn't mean you know, or to to mainstream culture it seems ridiculous. You know, it doesn't mean that it doesn't actually impact mainstream culture and sort of have this impact on our world and the way that we build things and the way our history gets told. So I kind of just came back to you know this kind of grouping of like fringe phenomenon in the way that I found that even regardless of whether or not you, you, you know, think any of this stuff is true or not, it has a material impact on our world. And and that seems sort of worth delving into for lack of a better word. Well, that's right. So, so you talk about that sort of early on in the book, you talk about how right now in our culture, there's a real sense that it's, it, it's often not even about what a person believes, but that a person believes, you know, that, that for much of our history, science and religion were linked. And, and now as a, as a sort of byproduct of us viewing them as, as these two individualized approaches, which of course there's, there's good reasons to, to sort of separate them. But, but there is also something that happens sort of in, in the, uh, I don't know, the human imagination when you create sort of different streams to explore, uh, the, the unknown essentially. Um, you know, what are some of the, the, I mean, do you, do you feel that this is all sort of that, that our attraction to the paranormal uh, really is related to the sort of disenchantment of, you know, the 20th century? Well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. I mean, that's, yeah, one of the strands that I pull out in the book, this idea that like, you know, with kind of in, you know, industrialized modernity, you know, whatever, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, you know, that like, 
the world now is not treated as a place of mystery. It's treated as a place of like, you know, everything sort of has a kind of utility value or, you know, whatever, like a purpose in like a hierarchy and, and, and nothing is sort of allowed to be magical or mysterious, except if it exists in religion, religion is sort of like the one like carve out from, you know, a kind of disenchanted world. And, you know, even then, you know, a lot of mainline religions now really downplay the idea of like, you know, miracles or whatever in favor of just kind of like a very disembodied, distant kind of deity. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of this stuff comes out of a, a reaction to that, um, this kind of desire for something, you know, that that sort of exists outside of the realms of the acceptable, you know, there's kind of, you know, the, something that's hovering on the periphery. And I think, I mean, like, you know, the X-Files, you know, the line from the X-Files, I think is so pertinent, you know, it's, it's not, I believe it's, I want to believe it's, I, you know, like, I want to believe that these things exist. I want to, I want to imagine a world that's larger than what, you know, I've been given. And I think that is a real primal kind of human, um, you know, kind of psychological desire. And like, you know, like for some people that happens through very sort of like normal, uh, or, you know, our sort of mainstream scientific pursuit, you know, I mean, like, we still don't know a lot about the universe. We don't know how, you know, whatever the universe was formed, or I don't know, you know, like, um, you know, we don't know what's half the things at the bottom of the ocean. We're still like, you know, discovering new weird species 4000 meters below the surface of the water. Like, so the stuff is like still happening. There's still weirdness and mystery out there. It's just that for some people, it takes a, a kind of different form and kind of, you know, like, kind of, they gravitate towards these kind of fringe, fringe beliefs for, for better or worse. So, I mean, was that sort of, was that basically the starting point for this book that you, that you wanted to explore, uh, you know, what maybe draws someone to the fringe? Because something that happens over the course of the book is the way you talk about the fringe has always, uh, interacted with the, uh, sort of the mainstream in a, I mean, I don't know how to put it you know, any other way than to say it's interacted with the mainstream in sort of an influential way, you know, like the fringe informs, uh, the mainstream. And then uh, also throughout the course of this book, you discuss the way the mainstream or our general, you know, I think our, you know, our, our, our prejudices, our weird ideas, the things we find, you know, alluring or, or whatever, those then in turn sort of inform the way the fringe is perceived, you know? So what was that sort of, did you start basically, was that, was the general start of the idea for this book to discuss sort of the relationship between, you know, those two forces in our culture? Um, you know, I think the actual start for this book was just really simply like, um, after the 2016 election, just feeling a wash in conspiracy theories, you know, and, and just sort of, taken aback by, by this moment of like, oh, I thought this was a sort of hyper rational age. And here we are, like people of all stripes seem to be really invested in conspiracy theories that are sort of, you know, very patently disprovable, but yet sort of cling to us. And so, you know, so I, at first, I, you know, I was like, well, I'll just write a book on, on conspiracy theories and why we believe conspiracy theories. And I mean, the first thing was like, I didn't want to write a book that was just all just like paranoid and terrifying and really just about how the state of the world was awful. I just, you know, like it just, it, it didn't feel like that was like the greatest way to, to approach this. And, you know, like, and I, and I, I was much more interested in writing about, you know, Bigfoot and UFOs just because they are sort of weird and magical and strange, you know, than I was like, you know, Pizzagate or, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which are just really, I mean, are hugely important um, in the way they, they, you know, shape the world, but in, in a way that's, that's really dark and, and paranoid. And so, so what I decided to do is I decided to just take a step back and see if I could sort of figure out how, you know, uh, a belief or a desire for a kind of, you know, fringe reality might over time, um, evolve into something that, that looks quite paranoid and sort of, you know, try to sort of maybe understand the kind of genealogy of the, the desire and primal belief that, that went into, you know, the human consciousness that kind of spewed out a lot of kind of what we're sifting through today. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's kind of where it started. <laughs> it does. I mean, did you generally have a sense as you, as you, as you wrote this book or was it something that sort of revealed its, itself more as time went on 
um, about the way that conspiracy theory, you know, and the structure of conspiracy theory. Um, I, I think right now what we're seeing happen a lot, you know, is this sort of weird sense of conspiracy theories, individual conspiracy theories, being braided together in a way that, um, you know, on one hand doesn't make a ton of sense, right? You know, I remember going to a UFO conference a couple of years ago for a story and uh, and there was someone there selling books about how Bigfoot was an alien or an extraterrestrial, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I remembered yeah. at the time, you know, it wasn't that I had never heard anything like that, you know, but I remember sort of having this weird sense of, of well, wh- why, what is it about, about us, you know, that wants to create these sort of grand unified theories, you know? Um, you talk about someone like Milton William Cooper in this, in this book, you know? And, and, and so you end up with like, you know, UFOs being tied, of course, to, you know, new world orders and all these, all this stuff, you know, I, I guess what I mean to say is like, you know, what is it about this, um, our desire to create sort of conspiracy theory Voltrons, you know, where everything comes together in this one sort of big overarching shape? What is it about that, you know, that that's interesting to you? You know, what what is that that, uh, what do you think that says about about people? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. This kind of, these things always expand. And I think, yeah, that was definitely something I really wanted to to understand better for myself because I, I, you see these increasingly elaborate uh, conspiracy theories that would draw in so many different strands, things that like, I, yeah, I was used to feeling were separate conspiracy theories, you know, JFK is not the same as the Loch Ness monster or whatever, but then you would see, or, you know, I don't know, that's maybe, you know, I didn't see anything that the Loch Ness monster shot JFK, but like, you know, yeah. but things not too <laughs> far off from that, you know, this idea that, sure. you know, as you say that like that Bigfoot is, um, you know, this is what I was told, you know, Bigfoot is an alien, definitely flies around in, in flying saucers is waiting to make a public appearance until we have, um, eliminated nuclear weapons and stopped global warming, you know, and it's just sort of, you know, really just like a lot of, there's just a lot of stuff going on in that sentence. And so, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So like a couple of things like that, I found really fascinating. Like one thing is that, you know, um, you know, so there is a, there is a premium on in these communities on um, encouraging other people's beliefs and, and a, a real disincentive to any kind of skepticism. So this is like, this is like, for example, one of the reasons why a lot of this stuff, uh, I mean, you know, a lot of it is very benign and, and harmless, but, you know, in a lot of these corners, you end up with these sort of wildly anti-Semitic um, expressions of, um, you know, be it aliens or, you know, the New World Order or whatever. And it's because in these communities, sort of nobody's invested in pushing back on anybody's theories. So if you believe that lizard people are real, and um, and then somebody comes along and believes that the you know quote unquote the Jews are running everything, then it's in neither of those two people's interest to push back on the other person. It's much easier for both of them to say, oh, the lizard people are the same as the Jews or something you know something horribly racist in that way you know and that becomes you know the kind of currency. So on the one hand, it's like in a culture of um, kind of uh, open ended belief everything tends to just get, you know, like with enough time, just sort of get expanded into one another. And that, so that's like the one thing, but I also think it's like, um, the longer, the longer you have this conspiracy theory and it, and it is not revealed, it goes unproven or, you know, like it, you sort of are waiting for the, the signal, you know, you're waiting for Bigfoot to come and tell us, you know, that, you know, he's from Venus and, um, he's, he's got a perpetual motion engine to save us all. Like the longer that goes on, that doesn't happen. You have to come up with more and more, uh, justifications and explanations for it. So like, oh, maybe it's because we haven't dealt with climate change, you know, or something like that, you know? So it's like this kind of, you, you, you add increasingly elaborate justifications to explain the lack of the predicted event, if that makes sense. It does make sense, right? And then so, and then the thing that, of course, happens is that the more layers you add, right, the more, um, I guess, you know, the individual's relationship to the conspiracy theory becomes more and more personal, right? So eventually, 
when you bring up, say, like a, a skeptical point, you know, or or you approach it from the from the stance of, say, like a debunker, you know, you, you're not just debunking the idea, right? You're 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 accidentally debunking the person as well to some degree, right? Like we have very, um, as humans, very personal relationships with with these things, right? Yeah. Oh, no, exactly. It's it's not it's it's not just. I think it's more primal even than what you're describing. I think it's like. You know, like years ago, I was exactly the guy on Facebook who was like, you know, coworker would post some conspiracy theory and I'd be in the comments writing the like, you know, posting the facts and debunking it. And, you know, and, and sure enough, it would just turn into like a flame war and then, you know, it would be over because they you just couldn't shake them of these beliefs. And I realized like, oh, this is because the belief, I mean, it took me a while to get here, but the, the belief is way more important than the facts. And so you're right. Like, to to question somebody's conspiracy theory is to com- is to question a thing which is a, offers a real sort of fulfills a real like primal psychological need for that person and I you know and I think that like you know people ask me like what do you do about conspiracy theories like the first thing you have to do is recognize that it's not about the facts or the objective truth it's like this this conspiracy theory is doing something for that person which is which is really fundamental to who they are and if you you have to sort of validate that need. And then if you're if you're very lucky and patient and careful, try and do a kind of, you know, like Indiana Jones, like switch the idol out for the bag of sand. Like, you know, at sure. some point you have to sort of like you want to you want to figure out what that need is and then um, and then offer something that will replace it that, you know, doesn't involve the weird conspiracy theory. But that's but, easier but, said than done. Yeah, but still speaks to, like you said, that primal need. You know, I think right. about stuff like I'm I'm hardly the only person to to say something like this you know it's it's a real common sort of refrain uh, among certain like folks on the internet you know but but something like QAnon you know um which we now see you know every every everybody from you know the 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 sort of i don't know ruby ridge type you know sort of uh a government uh you know anti-government you know, bunker type people to, you know, your aunt, you know, posting about Mm -hmm. QAnon now. Right. And and on one hand, of course, uh, we bring our, our racism, our colonial worldview, our, you know, all this, all the stuff that like a person might have, you know, uh, packed into their head. They bring all of that to a conspiracy theory and, and to their engagement with a conspiracy theory. But with QAnon, you know, the sense that there are power pe- powerful people manipulating our destinies, you know, uh, and and they don't particularly treasure human life, you know, or human well-being. It's not hard to, to see where that comes from, you know, that fear. It, it, it's addressing a real a real fear, but it's doing something very strange with it, which you get into. You talk at one point in this book about how you know, the, the percentage of people who believe that 9-11 was an inside job in our country is pretty staggering. You know, there, it's, it's, it's not a small number. Uh, I can't speak to the actual number because I haven't I haven't really done it. But I think it's it's fair to say a lot of people think it was an inside job. But we haven't seen protests the way we've seen about, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests right now or or even Occupy Wall Street to some degree. You know, we haven't seen protests like that. Uh, and it and it does make me wonder if you you know do you suspect that there's something about these conspiracy theories which confirm our fear but don't necessarily motivate us to any sort of action? I'm using the term like us, you know, in a, in a real broad sense. Yeah. I, I hope that you know everybody understands. I'm 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 not saying you know individuals. I'm talking about people, you know. But it, do you get the sense that that's something there that that the conspiracy theory theory almost, you know, comforts in a way and, and suggests that maybe the problem is so vast that there's no real, you know, recourse. I, I don't know. Am I, is, am I wandering into the desert with this? No, no. I mean, you're right. I mean, that was a thing that really struck me when, you know, and I, and I don't think I'd really ever thought about it until I was working on this book. And I was like, you know, like, yeah, everybody, you know, not everybody, a lot of people, believe that 9-11 was an inside job. You know, I've seen numbers from, you know, 10% to 30%. They sort of wax and wane depending on who's in the White House, it turns out. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's a huge number of people. It's millions of people who, who you know, at least respond to, you know, surveys saying saying that's the case. And, and, and yeah, as you mentioned, it's like, 
if that is the case, you are you are arguing that the government um, commits mass murder of its own citizens. And like, why wouldn't you be out in the streets? Why wouldn't you be like, why wouldn't there be like, you know, movements that that rally, um, you know, or, you know, that rival, you know, a Black Lives Matter protest or something like that. I mean, and I, and, and I think that, you know, through sort of kind of working through, you know, how conspiracy theories work in, in psychology, it is this case of like, there's something about believing in a conspiracy theory like 9-11 was an inside job that that sort of it allows you to see it as somehow sort of kind of disinterested or disinvested or happening sort of almost in another plane. It's sort of like it's like, yeah, the you know, the United States kills its citizens by flying planes into buildings. But that doesn't impact my life, except in this very sort of tangential or abstract sense, you know, where, again, I mean, you know, people protesting in the wake of George Floyd's death, you know, you know, quite literally, we we are being killed by our government and we would like our government to stop doing that. You know, and it's it's very real and visceral and present to, you know, black communities and, you know, and other communities in this country. And so like so, yeah, there's something about a conspiracy theory that that almost sort of like it's it's a kind of alchemical process. You know, it takes something real and physical and material and sort of like transmutes it into something abstract and symbolic where you can kind of kind of elevate yourself above the 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 cares of the worlds into this plane where you can sort of you know almost disinterestedly discuss the ways in which you know these these forces are out to you know kill and maim and murder the world but in a way that doesn't actually ever impact you it's a, it's a very weird psychological defense mechanism that i think is is um, again, it's it's a it's a sort of primal way of of protecting yourself against the chaos of the world, but it also sort of involves this very strange distortion of history in in, in a way that I find fascinating. All right, let's take a minute now to hear about our sponsor. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms might help people find your work, but they don't always get you paid. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per-stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you can skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken, so if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. All right, let's get back to transmissions. Do you feel like you can trace back the sort of modern conspiratorial imagination to the cranks of, of the 19th century? You know what? Maybe actually you should maybe define what a crank is for our listeners, just in case they're not they're not sure what a crank is. Yeah. So so crank is a, a term of art that sort of props up in the 1890s and early 1900s. And it's just, it, it's the the guy or, you know. Could be anyone. I just Adelia Bacon is as a good example of a female crank, but it's somebody who um, is sort of advocating some you know theory that sort of looks sort of scientific, like it borrows maybe from scientific rhetoric or you know kind of mimics a kind of scientific pose and probably uses a little bit of actual good science and some actual you know legitimate scientific facts, but then uses it to create this kind of outlandish idea or a conspiracy theory or something that is the result of something that that when you read it at first you're like okay maybe this is plausible and then if you actually start to pick it apart it will it you know falls apart like a house of cards but it's sort of you know so so the crank is in some sense a little bit more pernicious than you know just the kind of you know guy on the street calling for the end of the world or whatever because the crank is sort of seduces you with this idea that that it could be plausible or it could be scientific so you know the guy that I, I talk about in the book, Ignatius Donnelly, is the guy who writes the the book, first book on Atlantis, arguing that Atlantis is like a real physical place, basically taking out of taking it from Plato's philosophy and 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 sort of mimicking archaeology and anthropology and and you know art history to sort of like 
propose it as a as a legitimate place that then you know takes off in in you know the popular imagination. Um, so so that's kind of the the crank and. Yeah, I think that what I tried to do with the book and I tried to kind of like lay out is how kind of the modern figures of people like Alex Jones or whomever um, are part of a, a longstanding genealogy that starts with with the cranks of the 19th century who are um, learning how to mimic a kind of um, – you know, journalistic or academic tone and, and sort of learning how to sort of pick and choose things that support their arguments and then using confirmation bias to sort of drive the rest. And then it's sort of, um, once, once that process is set in motion, it, it, it kind of takes on a life of its own. So people like, you know, obviously Charles Fort, you know, I think in the book, you say something along the lines that he positioned that in science, there's only believers and cranks, so he sort of might as well be a crank. I think that's something that that he kind of basically lays out. Well, um, he doesn't. He doesn't because that's where he starts, and he starts thinking, well, you know, I don't want to be a scientist, so I guess I'm going to be a crank. And then he writes a couple of crank books, like one of which is like um, something like we're all controlled by radio waves projected from the planet Mars or something. But then he can't get it published. The manuscript gets lost. We don't, we, we only have it like, you know, references to it in letters. And he, he then, um, devises a kind of third way. And I think, you know, like, you know, I, I think of Charles Ford, whose, whose birthday was just two days ago. Um, so happy birthday, Charles. Um, um, but you know, he devises this third way where he's sort of like, I'm going to use, the historical record and all these accounts of things I found, you know, rains of frogs and meat falling from the sky and uh, weird fish that appeared after earthquakes and all sorts of weird stuff. And I'm going to use it to critique the scientific record, but I'm not going to propose necessarily like my own crank theory in, you know, in its place. And, <clears throat> and that's, I think, what, what really makes Ford's books, particularly the first one, The Book of the Damned, such a great document because it is it is a critique of the institution of science without itself um proposing an alternative edifice that that would be sort of equally suspect if if held up to any kind of scrutiny so it it, it it's still much more readable and enjoyable and thought-provoking than than a kind of similar crank book would have been because the the focus is on the anomaly itself not it's not the focus not necessarily on the explanation is that sort of is that what you find maybe yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because Ford's basic idea is, you know, the book of the damned, you know, when he talks about damned facts, you know, these are facts that are excluded from the record and thus have been sort of cast out and damned. That's this kind of, you know, and so, right. so, so yeah. And his response is, is basically, look, I don't necessarily have an explanation for these things. I'm not exactly interested in proposing one, but you have to admit that these things exist in the historical record and science doesn't want to talk about them. And, and that is that in and of itself is, it's important. So, yeah, so it's like, it's, it's like these kind of things just sort of exist in the world. And, and it's, you know, I mean, for me, like, I think it's very difficult to walk this line because I, you know, our instinct is to try and come up with explanations, but I think what like Fort's challenge to us, and it's a challenge that even he doesn't always meet himself because he will eventually kind of propose these really ridiculous uh, proposals that you know sort of are are really dubious. But at his best, I think what he's sort of inviting us to do is say like, you can have these things that are unexplainable in the world, and you can just accept that they're unexplainable, and yet they exist and they're all around us. And I, you know, I, you know, I as I work through a lot of these kind of stories and ideas and things that, you know, like, you know, I investigated, like some of them, I was like, oh, this is pretty dicey. This is pretty dubious. But I, you know, I did end up with about, you know, like a half dozen or so things at the end where I, where I was basically like, I don't have an answer for this. And it seems to have happened in one form or another. And none of the scientific explanations really work to explain what happened. So we're left with these unknowns at the end. You, you talk at various points, uh, uh, I think you referenced both the X-Files, which has come up in this talk, and then also Twin Peaks, you know. Um, I think about the way, uh, you know, Twin Peaks is, is maybe my favorite television show of all time, you know, particularly the third season. Um, yeah. And, and and what I love about what David Lynch and Mark Frost do with Twin Peaks is is the way they leave the gaps 
uh, open, basically. They, they don't go to great lengths to explain everything. Uh, they present you mostly with the mystery or the mood surrounding the mystery and, uh, you know, occasionally these sort of divine acts, you know, that, uh, uh, take place in our world, you know, but they don't, they don't, uh, they don't, they don't clean it all up. They don't tidy it all up. Not even as much as the X-Files does, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, um, this is a, this is a very uncool confession, but I didn't actually watch Twin Peaks, the series when it was on, you know, the first two seasons when they were on network TV. And, I mean, I saw like maybe one or two episodes and then I saw, but I saw the movie, I saw Firewalk with me before I had seen the series and yeah. I love the movie. I still love the movie. I love it. I, I love it in many ways more than the show. It's, I think it's one of, you know, David Lynch's greatest films. And partly it's because kind of, you know, to allude to what you're talking about, like without any context, you can watch that movie and you're like, there's so many references to things that are are sort of in this world that are, you know, are significant, but you have no frame of reference for what they mean or how they relate to anything. And so there's, you know, there's this kind of core story that has this emotional resonance of like Laura Palmer's last week. But at the same time, you're just invited to kind of imagine this really sprawling, strange world. And especially with the movie when they were trying to, you know this, I'm sure that they were trying to sort of seed the idea of a spinoff with David Bowie down in Buenos Aires. So there's that weird David Bowie bit in the middle. That's supposed to be like a teaser right. for another show. Right. Um, you know, so it's like, so it's like, it's this like from, from like a sort of Hollywood standard, it's a complete mess because none of these things add up and they're just, you know, these weird like tangents, but like from, from the kind of like somatic experience of watching that film, it's just, you're like awash in this, this world of like mystery and unexplained things that have all these weird resonances that you know are never going to be fully explained to you. Season three also, as you mentioned, really does that really well too, I think. Well, see, and I think that what that ties into is something else that you you note in the book, which is that and at, at one point you're, you're sort of talking, you talk about various things. You talk about, you know, photos of UFOs. You talk about, of course, the, the, the Patterson-Gimlin uh, Bigfoot hoax film of 1964. Um, yeah. And you talk, you, I think you say at one point, the poorer the quality, the more authentic the image appears. And to me, I think that what you're what you're getting at there, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is a little bit about the the way that our imagination interacts with these stories. Um, we the, the, the sort of the more gaps to fill in, the more blurry the, the, the notion, the, the sort of hazier the idea the more real that it seems. And I wonder if, do you think that that's because, you know, um, there is a, an innate sort of sense of mystery and wonder and awe in the world. And that, uh, you know, that if we're going to, I don't know, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say, I think that, that the question, you know, will, will we ever prove or solve these things? I, I don't know that that's even what most people are interested in happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it was interesting for me, you know, my last book was really, you know, the one on ghost was a lot more focused on technology because I, I really do think that, um, you know, anytime we have any kind of new tele or, you know, technological advance from like the telegraph to the internet to infrared cameras or whatever, it is almost immediately, uh, you know, used to provoke or produce something that that appears to be like haunted, you know, EVPs and K2 meters and all that stuff. And like, sure. and so like, I really found like a really strong correlation between um, technology and, and ghosts. And this book, it, you know, on the one hand, it, there wasn't a lot, there wasn't nearly as much of that in there. But you know, as you say, it's sort of like, yeah, like the things that really really cemented a lot of these, um, these stories in kind of popular conscious had to do with um, a very specific use of technology at a very specific time. You know, the, the, um, that, the grainy surgeon's photograph of the Loch Ness monster, which is the one that, you know, I'm sure everybody calls to mind if they think of the Loch Ness monster, that, you know, grainy black and white kind of fogged out image with the, with the head rising up out of the lake. You know, I mean, it's just like, it, it doesn't matter that it's almost entirely like, assuredly false. You know, the people who staged the hoax have admitted it. Doesn't matter that it's a hoax. It's still a great photograph, you know, same thing with the Gimlin Patterson, you know, footage of Bigfoot that you mentioned, like, it's like, 
Yeah, like if primatologists look at that and they're like, you know, there's no way an animal with those kind of features would walk in that way or or look like that. But yet it's still a really cool, like, you know, it's just a cool film, you know. And so I think that, yeah, that that um, these things come into our consciousness at a time when um, there's a sort of limitation to how much, you know, we can kind of document. And it's like it's sort of the the gaps in the in the archive or in the documentation that allow these things to to flourish and kind of, you know, fixate in our imagination, I guess. I mean, and do you think that it's important to not discount the role of uh, like creative showmanship and uh, essentially, uh, you know, presentation in this stuff? You you talk about, well, you talk about like Ray Palmer, right? You know, editor of, of Amazing Stories and Fate Magazine and how he sort of laid down some of the foundational framework for the way we discuss the paranormal. Uh in the book, you give a really straightforward reading of the Kenneth Arnold story, sort of father of, of the modern UFO sighting, and you don't skimp on noting the contradictions and the elements that don't add up and the, the elements that remain mysterious, you know, the elements that could be explained. You, you kind of show it all, right? But it seems to me that people uh, very often, due to their own sort of personal relationship and romance with the ideas, you know, they excise the the parts that don't fit their sort of um, what they like about the story. Um, you know, you're obviously a, a you know tremendously talented writer and researcher. You know, but but I'm curious. You know, on a real basic level, do you ever struggle with essentially the romance of 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 this stuff? Uh, you know, in in you know, I mean. I, I like mysteries too. You know what I mean? I, I, I like when mysteries persist. So do you ever struggle yourself with the, with the romance or do you feel like it's entirely possible as I think you do, you know, with this book to sort of uh, acknowledge all of that while still uh, probing deeper into to what it might mean or say about us? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely the case that you can do, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like I, I really, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I think that, yeah, like I am, I'm absolutely enthralled and in love with all this stuff. I, and I love, I love stuff, even if I find out it's a hoax, you know, as I said, I love that surgeon's photograph. I will always love that surgeon photograph. And it doesn't matter to me, you know, that it, that it was clearly faked, you know, like I, right. and I think that, you know, that, that, you know, like the world can be, you can be attuned to that, that longing and that yearning that these things producing you. And I think it's totally healthy and great. You know, I mean, like, um, so yeah, so I think I, you know, I, I, I think I get labeled a kind of, you know, killjoy skeptic, skeptic sometimes, which I, uh, you know, I, all right, fine. You know, I, you know, that's, that's par for the course, but I, I do also think that it's important to really like keep open a space for that weird kind of mystery. And so I do think that, um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily easy because, you know, kind of the ways that we're talking about your brain is kind of hardwired to go one or the other, either, you know, if, if you, if you want to believe it, you kind of downplay evidence to the contrary, or, you know, if you don't believe it, then, you know, it's kind of disenchanted and robbed of its kind of magic. But I, I do wonder, you know, if there's a, a way to do both and if there's a way to kind of preserve that, that feeling that, you know, you, you, that, you know, these things causing you and sort of provoking you without necessarily, then having to double down on on sort of increasingly elaborate conspiracy th theories in order to you know discount evidence to the contrary. I think that a lot of people who are interested in this stuff they hate to hear uh, the claim that you sort of you know that you make in this book and that really all my favorite books about this stuff you know state something along the lines of. When it comes down to the unknown, you know, to Bigfoot or cryptids or the UFOs or, or anything, you know, angels, fairies, very often what this stuff does is tell us, uh, it, it, it reminds us that there's a lot that remains unknown or unexplained about the way even our minds work and our hearts work and our, you know, the way we construct ideas. Um at one point, you know, you you mentioned that, um, you know, people people wonder how these stories constantly adapt to the present culture. But I think that's sort of hardwired into them, right? They're always uh, stories that we share and pass around to tell 
each other about the way the world works. You know, Atlantis and Lemuria, you know, at one point you're, you're in, in the Shasta mountains and you're talking about how this promised land, uh, was, was risen in, in, on the American West coast, you know, which has actual implications for the sort of way we conceive of, you know, colonial conquest, uh, these things constantly exist as a repository for our fears and and our our whatever our greed or, or or any of that racism colonialism it shapes the way people tell this story i think maybe my favorite part of the book actually was when you're speaking with uh with Clyde i don't know how to pronounce how's Clyde uh, Talio uh, Clyde Ta- Talio yeah um yeah that was definitely one of my favorite interviews in the entire book i have to say well, so he's an orator and a historian, and you're speaking with him a little bit about, um, you know, not just about the the myths, you know, associated with, say, Sasquatch or whatever, but he explains how the way that these stories uh, were told in, in in a tribal context allowed for building a worldview and, and focusing on values, and and how when he deals with cryptid hunters they're not interested in anything that he has to tell them unless it aligns with their own sort of assumptions and their established worldview. Um, and I think that maybe uh, what I love most about this book is the way you say that these stories could theoretically um, be used to expand our understanding of the world and, and not narrow our worldview, but broaden it and incorporate you know, any number of, of new potentially helpful ideas. If Bigfoot helped people understand the need to fight climate change, maybe that's a, a positive thing. You know, if, uh, <laughs> if, if theosophy, you know, allows you the framework, uh, to create, uh, vital and powerful art, then that's a good use for it. You know, do, do you suspect that, that, that the way we interact with these stories, that there might be a healthier or more, uh, you know, sort of holistic way to engage with this stuff? Uh, is that, does, do you think that's out there? Oh yeah, it's definitely out there. And I think it happens a lot more than, than I think we expect, or maybe even at times I feel like it happens more than I, I even give it credit for, but I think it does. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, my conversation with, with, with Clyde was really great because he, he told me a bunch of stories and then he was like, very clearly, he's like, okay, now I can tell you those stories, but you can't repeat them because they don't belong to you. You know? And, and he sort of explained to me the way that, um, that, that the, the stories themselves are kind of like currency that gets told, you know, that different families, um, and, and clans will sort of have, you know, have kind of almost ownership on these, these stories that then they tell, um, at potlatch and at other gatherings. And it's sort of, and it, it is a kind of, sort of form of exchange, which I thought that's just not something that I was used to thinking about. And, you know, unless I sort of understood the way, you know, he, he obviously had, had issues with, you know, you know, white writers like myself who would sort of just show up and say, you know, tell me your good stories so I can just put them in this book, you know? And so I wanted to be, you know, really clear about that, you know, really clear that I, you know, like I, I was deferring to him on sort of how he kind of, you know, saw these stories as, as having use and how I was going to put them in the book. But it was like, one of the many moments in in the book where I was just like, okay, so, you know, these things can mean different things to different people. And, 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 and thus, if we sort of open a little bit of our, our sort of mind about what it means for a story, you know, be it a true story or not, you know, but like, you know, just simply storytelling the most generic version of that word, um, you know, what it, the way that it enlarges and shapes our world. And so, you know, like, I mean, like, you know, again, with Bigfoot, like Bigfoot, you know, as I kind of, you know, figured out, and I, you know, this was new to me, you know, sort of part of this longer tradition of what's called like the wild man uh, sort of archetype in various folklore. And it happens, um, you know, you find it in cultures all over the world. And what happened in the, in like the forties and fifties is that it dropped out of folklore and became a, like a, an actual, you know, supposedly empirical actual being, you know, so it's sort of, it jumped out of the land of kind of like storytelling and myth and became instead, you know, empirical reality. And, and that sort of responded to the moment in time of a kind of culture that was sort of looking for something like that. And so you, you, you can kind of see the way in which stories 
evolve to to fit and shape our world at at the time in which they arise. And so I think that's always going to continue. And we're always going to be getting versions of these stories that are going to appear in new ways. And they're going to do that because they're going to be meeting kind of various needs and having various social currency. To wrap up, I'd like to maybe ask you, you know, right now, it's clear that culturally, we remain fascinated with with aliens, you know, with extraterrestrials. Uh, every couple of weeks, you know, there's a story in the New York Times that, you know, that that confirms maybe not the existence of anything, but certainly the existence of people who take this very, very seriously and spend real dollars to try to understand it or engage with it, you know? Um, in the same way that Bigfoot or the Wild Man tells us stories about ourselves and who we perceive ourselves to be um what do you what do you think what do you think our 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 attraction to extraterrestrials or the idea of them what do you think that says about how we as humans see ourselves in in the universe yeah that's a that's it i mean i the conclusion i came to is that's a really broad and um and complicated question and i you know i i I ended up having to do a kind of genealogy of, of like, you know, UFO and, and alien sightings to try and understand not just, you know, how that question gets answered, but how, how rapidly that question evolves through the generations. And I think the easiest way to say it is I think that, um, you know, our, our interest in cryptids is really a reflection of our um, relationship to the natural world, you know, and, and, and to the extent that we want to believe that it has sort of hidden mysteries left for us, or, you know, we want to believe that it has things that, you know, perpetually remain, you know, um, you know, out of our reach or, or to the the extent that we're in some sense sort of alienated from the natural world and they, and that, and that these things are an expression of our sense of there's something sort of perpetually unknowable about the natural world. But aliens, I think are, a reflection of our, um, you know, for lack of a better word, alienation from ourselves and what makes us human, you know, that we, we project in our conceptions of, of aliens, either, um, like better versions of ourselves, you know, which was really popular in the, in the fifties with the idea of like the space brothers who had like better technology and had abandoned nuclear war and that kind of stuff. And we're going to kind of show us the way, but we also use aliens to project, um, you know, various sort of you know, xenophobic fears about, about other cultures and, you know, other versions of ourselves. And so, you know, the, the, the figure of the alien, I think, um, you know, whether or not they exist, you know, and again, I, I, I assume somewhere out there, there's other life on other planets. That seems like a pretty high statistical likelihood. Um, but I, you know, the, at least the, the popular conceptions, the mainstream conceptions of things that get put forward as sort of documented proof, um, you know, in ways that I, I think are, 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 you know, rarely stand up to scrutiny. I think what's going on there is people are expressing in various forms, um, a, a sort of non-human being for the purpose of kind of reflecting back on, on, you know, what literally makes us human. Do you, do you think that, that, that we need to develop ways to talk about these ideas that, that, don't just do that, that don't just relate to our perception of ourself? Or do you think that 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 doesn't really exist in any other category either? So why should it exist in this in this category? Oh, no, I mean, I definitely think, you know, like, it's it behooves us to start to think beyond these ways. And, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I like, um, you know, the films of, of Andrei Tarkovsky so much, you know, Solaris and Stalker is that they are both you know, in the two novels that they're based on, Solaris and Roadside Picnic, they they are both um, attempts to sort of, you know, conceive of and imagine a kind of alien sentience that would be utterly unrecognizable to us, you know, and, and not just be a kind of refracted projection of humanity onto some, you know, creature with three eyes, you know. So I think those 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 narratives are both really great and sort of like pushing forward the question of like what would what would a, an interaction with something utterly unrecognizable look like to us? And how would we even begin to sort of explore that? Um, so I do think it's worth going down those roads. And I think, you know, we, we have occasionally, we get really interesting kind of expressions of what that would look like. And I think that's, that's a really worthwhile, um, intellectual exercise. See, that's what I want Star Trek to do, man. That's, that's what I want modern Star Trek. I want, I want to see something, I want to see an interaction with something 
that, that doesn't even, that, that we can't make sense of, you know, I'm so frustrated I mean, how often our, our science fiction uh, d- doesn't seem interested in that idea. It's crazy to me. It's, I'm sorry, this is just my rant here. It's crazy to me that in, in Star Wars and in Star Trek, although I don't have a, like an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek, so maybe somebody will prove me wrong in this, but as far as I know, in neither franchise have they ever given us an alien that doesn't have bilateral symmetry. Um, like, which is just nuts to me because there are so many animals, like known animals on Earth that don't have bilateral symmetry, and yet every single alien in some form or another you know, has got two eyes or, you know, two, you know, even limbs or, you know, it's just like they all have sure. bilateral symmetry in a way that I'm just like, like, this is so lazy. <laughs> so like, yeah. like, it's one thing when you got to put a guy in a rubber suit, so he's going to look kind of humanoid. But now with like CGI, I'm like, how can you guys keep like creating the same narrow band of possibility in this? Uh, anyways, I'm sorry. I'm just ranting right now. But you know, that's, you know, we're Tra- winding down. So <laughs> yeah, transmissions <laughs> listeners, you can find uh, Colin and myself on on Twitter and yell at us about Star Trek aliens. Uh, Yes, I, please do. Yeah. I, I welcome it. I'm sure somebody's going to bring up the the Horta, the sort of like blob thing that Spock talks to. But uh, oh, is that, oh, so I was wrong about that. There's a well. There's I, that's the that's the one that comes to mind at least. Uh, you know, but uh, but I'm but I'm I'm you know your your point stands, Colin. There's a it's mostly right. it's mostly you know aliens that look pretty much like like dudes and and ladies in you know different colors or whatever a green right. Um, Colin, this book, The Unidentified, there's, there's, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about stuff. We didn't even get into the meat shower or the space babes or any of the other stuff that you get into in this great book. But um, I think we, we offered uh, a, pretty, a pretty good sort of uh, taster menu of, of some of the ideas you get into this book. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it, man. It was, it was a great thrill to read it, and it was really fun to talk with you about it. Oh, yeah. This was a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a blast. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Colin. We'll, we'll talk again soon. We'll have to have you back on to talk about uh, ghosts or uh, or death. You have a lot going on with uh, the, the, the concept of death that I think would be very important in these uh, death-ridden times. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'm always happy to, <laughs> whatever that says about me. But yeah, sure. I'd love to do this again. Great. Well, thanks so much, Colin. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot. That's going to bring this week's episode of Transmissions to a close. Special thanks to Andrew Horton for helping us out. If you dug it, feel free to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or simply shoot it over to a friend via an email, something like that. Let them know that you're digging Transmissions. We appreciate it very much. If you need more from Aquarium Drunkard, you can head over to AquariumDrunkard.com and sign up for our weekly sidecar newsletter. We feature all sorts of cool stuff from the site, but also stuff that we don't put on the site, just sort of pop culture recommendations, books, movies, records, that sort of thing. Via satellite, transmitting from northeast Los Angeles, don't forget to tune into the Aquarium Drunkard show on Sirius XMU, channel 35. That's at 7 p.m. California time every Wednesday. My favorite radio show, Justin Gage, aquarium drunkard founder, head honcho, main man. He brings you that show every single week on Sirius XMU. So tune in. And one more thing before we're out of here. On August 29th at independent record stores nationwide, the Lanyap Sessions, Volume 2, a limited edition vinyl record from Org Music and Aquarium Drunkard. You know the Lanyap sessions. That's where your favorite artists cover their favorite artists. We put out the first installment of this series a few years back with Light in the Attic, and on August 29th, we're back with a new one. We'll be back next week with more transmissions. Until then, stay safe. Introducing Lanyap Sessions Volume 2 from Aquarium Drunkard and Org Music. 13 of your favorite artists covering hit songs all in one place pressed on high quality clear vinyl. Available exclusively for Record Store Day 2020, Lanyap Sessions Volume 2 features such tracks as Can't Hardly Wait in the style of Michael Cronus. Bony Vare's Blood Bank, 
by the mountain goats. And Napeyes playing Lucinda Williams' classic, Too Cool to Be Forgotten. You can't get Langyep Sessions Volume 2 just anywhere. Beginning August 29th, this incredible vinyl compilation will only be available at independent record stores participating in Record Store Day 2020. Head to www.recordstoreday.com to find a store near you. That's www.recordstoreday.com. Don't miss your chance to own this collection of hits featuring Kevin Morby, Damian Gerardo, Aaron Ray, Mountain Man, and many more. 